This is a Rook Media Series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 10. Hi there, and welcome to the Contemporary History of Iran, a series from Rook Media. This is part 10, The Persian Schindler. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Our aim with this series is to explore the events, personalities, and issues that have shaped modern Iran. We want to do this as much as possible through a non-traditional lens, through snapshots of change, and using alternative voices or angles. This series is mostly in English and will feature a new episode posted every Thursday across our Rook Media platforms. We will post subtitled excerpts with Farsi Zirnavis on our YouTube and Instagram sites. We are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It is there that you can link to all of our platforms, and we invite you to check out parts one through nine of this series that are already posted. To become a sponsor or a patron of Rook Media, please contact us through our website. The Contemporary History of Iran is brought to you in part by Yazdani Law Group. YLG is one of the largest Iranian-Canadian immigration law firms. Their mission, rooted in the leadership of founder Afshin Yazdani, is built on continuously striving to innovate and introduce new immigration pathways for their clients. Afshin began his career as a lawyer and law professor in Iran, and his company has now made it their goal to provide the best, simplest, least risky, and most inexpensive way to immigrate to Canada. YLG has an impressive track record, hundreds of applications from Iran successfully processed every year. They are at YLGPC on Instagram. That is Yazdani Law Group. All right, let's get started. Here now is the Contemporary History of Iran, Part 10. Well, as we have previously suggested on this series, there are events and personalities of modern Iran that have been regularly covered or discussed by academics and those who shape the narratives of our history. The Shah, Khomeini, or the 1979 revolution come to mind. They are worthy subjects, of course, and there are moments or figures as well who are, as is often the case, viewed through a particular ideological lens in retrospect. But then there are Iranians in our history that deserve our attention from all sides and have only come into the public consciousness more recently due to the work of a certain academic or storyteller. On this episode of the Contemporary History of Iran, we want to look at just such a figure. You might say an Iranian hero who has long deserved recognition, albeit posthumously. Abdul Hossein Sardari was an Iranian diplomat whose lineage actually came from the Qajar royal family. He studied at the University of Geneva and graduated with a law degree in 1936. 
By 1942, Sardari was the Iranian consul general in Nazi-occupied Paris. There was a sizable community of Iranian Jews in Paris when German forces invaded and occupied the city. It was Sardari who would help thousands of Iranian and non-Iranian Jews escape the Holocaust. He did this at great personal risk. And in the process, the late Ambassador Saudari may have saved far more lives than Oscar Schindler, but he has received far less recognition in comparison. And indeed, Abdul Hossein Saudari died penniless and alone in the early 1980s, years after the Second World War and after the Iranian Revolution. To discuss the Persian Schindler, I'm joined on this episode by the man who is solely responsible for bringing the story of Sardari to international spotlight in his factual and dramatic book, In the Lion's Shadow. Dr. Fadi Borzim Mukhtari is an historian and professor born in Iran in 1946. He's had an impressive career in academia as well as journalism and work for the Near East South Asia Center for Strategic Studies. To discuss the story of Sardari, the reasons behind a universal historical mission of the Sardari tale, and what motivated Dr. Mukhtari to pursue this fascinating story, I'm joined by Professor Fadi Borza Mukhtari in Vermont. Hello, sir. Well, hello. Uh, how are you? Listen, I'm, I'm very well. I, I, I'll be very honest. I, I very much enjoyed reading this book. I'm glad that uh, I, I'm, I'm ashamed that bringing you on the program was my impetus to, to read it. I should have read it anyway. It's fascinating, and I thank you for it. Well, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Uh, Professor Mukhtari, where did this extraordinary story start for you? How, how did it come upon your radar that there had been an Iranian responsible for saving Jewish lives during the Holocaust in France. Mm -hmm. And when did you know you wanted to make a book out of it? This really goes back to my own upbringing. I lived uh, in a family, an environment uh, that really uh, showed me uh, the general tolerance that the Iranian culture has. And we lived, uh, for instance, uh, uh, in, in an area where Jewish families were our neighbors. Uh, and I, from childhood, I had Jewish friends, and we would go to their houses, and they would come to our house uh, and play. Uh, so th th this really was the background. And then uh, later on, uh, I had heard rumors that Iranian diplomats and officials had helped uh, uh, not only Jews, but uh, various victims of Nazi uh, oppression and so on. When I uh, read something, I, I think it was a book about Prime Minister, late Prime Minister Hoveido, by uh, uh, Professor Abbas Milani. There was a reference to, to a diplomat who had helped Jews in, in France. Uh, I called his publisher, and through the publisher, I got in touch with him. Uh, uh, and he gave me the na names of a few people who had told him that. So I contacted those people. Uh, and finally, I was meeting a friend of mine from high school. Uh, we were in New Jersey at his home, and I mentioned that I have this story, but I don't have eyewitnesses. Uh, his wife, God bless her, said uh, uh, in a very friendly manner, <laughs> you dummies, uh, you have a classmate from Albors High School whose wife was in France at the time. <laughs> so we called him, uh, the gentleman's name is Majid Azizi. 
Uh, we called Majid. Majid came over. He lives in New Jersey too, and he brought his wife. <laughs> and through that, uh, we made a few telephone calls to her relatives in Los Angeles and the whole thing started. Uh, the ball started rolling. You know, the story is so fantastic. The story of Sardari, this this man, this uh, who uh, ends up saving these Jewish lives in 1942 in France uh, and, and through the Second World War. It's the kind of thing that I can imagine Iranians say, telling each other over the dinner table, or uh, it's almost like this mythical story that we would tell. Tell me about the. It takes a lot to write a book like this about a subject that hasn't even been um, codified, that hasn't even been uh, uh, realized before historically, uh, that you know that you're going to go and have to do the primary research and, and bring this story to light. Tell me about why that was so important to you. I mean, you say you grew up with Jewish friends in Iran, but, but why go embark on this journey? Well, deep down, uh, I knew that our culture really had this this very basic uh, tolerance in it. Uh, it is embedded in our culture. Uh, so deep down, I, I wanted this story uh, to be true. I, I actually was convinced that it was true. Uh, when I started uh, digging evidence and I went to national archives and met people and talked to people, it, it gave me such a, a feeling of uh, satisfaction that it confirmed my, my belief in tolerance. So it, 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 it was a labor of love, in a, in a manner of speaking. Uh, and it took a long time. It, it took several years to do this. <laughs> you know, but it was very satisfying. Why were you so convinced that Iranians uh, have this tolerance? You talk about uh, the neighbors when you were, uh, you were born after the Second World War, but you were born into a military family, and you grew up in a mixed neighborhood that included many Iranian Jews. Where did, the, where did the idea come from that, I mean, it's a laudable one, and I would hope this would be the case, but that, that Iranians practice such tolerance? Well, I, some of it I had seen, uh, you know, in my, my own family, in my extended family. When I was uh, about two and a half, three years old, we were visiting my grandparents my, on my mother's side in Kerman Shah. And uh, one day, my grandfather called his... Uh, uh, a butler, a person who, who would take care of the household affairs, uh, and uh, told him to, his name was Nazir Khan, so Nazir Khan, go to the neighbor's house and, and uh, uh, turn on the lights, start the fire in their kitchen. Uh, and I thought, you know, why does somebody have to go to somebody else's house to turn on the lights? And later on, I found out that this was a Saturday and they were Orthodox Jews, and they were neighbors. Uh, later on, of course, we had our own uh, Jewish neighbors. On top of that, we had relatives who had gone abroad, for instance, and, and married and come back with wives who were Christian or, or, or of different nationalities, French, uh, German, and, and so on. I also remember we had a, a family member on my mother's side from, from Kurdistan, but uh, he was married to, to a beautiful, stunningly beautiful lady uh, who happened to be Jewish. Uh, there, there were things like this that convinced me that uh, all the things that I had heard about tolerance, and later on, of course, by reading history, this was confirmed. So the theme of this book, or the turning point, the trick to saving lives, mm -hmm. was for Abdul Hussein Sardari to do something quite remarkable, and that's to convince the Germans that uh, Jewish people from Iran, Iranian Jews, were somehow different 
from non-Iranian Jews. How did he do that, and why would the Germans fall for it? Two basic reasons. Uh, one of them is the uh, absurdity and inconsistency in the German racial policy, their ideology of dividing people by races and by blood and stuff of that sort uh, really doesn't cut the scientific muster. It just right. <laughs> doesn't do it. So Sadori exploited that. Uh, at the same time, Sadori had a command of several languages, you know, French and German, and Persian and English. Uh, he had gone to boarding school in England since he was seven years old, and he had a legal education. And therefore, he had this, this skill uh, to pose questions or propose ideas uh, that, uh, that would um, make people stop and think, uh, even if they were not convinced, they hesitated, you know. <laughs> uh, and, he, and he cultivated this. Uh, he, he would pose these questions and write to various officials. Uh, and the Germans, really, I would classify the, the Germans into several groups. There were some Germans who were of old families uh, and didn't really like the, the Nazis. Uh, you know, one of them, for instance, was the first secretary at the uh, German embassy in France. Uh, he was a friend of Sadr. He, he would help him out. Then you had some people in, in the official uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs or various other places who were careerists. They, they had joined the Nazi party in 1933, and they wanted advancement. Uh, and, and therefore, they towed the line because they wanted to go to higher places, uh, uh, better positions and salaries and so on. And there, there were another group who were uh, true believers in the ideology and followed it blindly. Uh, the division among these people uh, helped Sadori to pose the questions and, and what he would write would go from one group to another group to another group. And in many cases would end up in, in centers for study of race and things of that sort. His argument was quite astounding. I mean, it's, it's almost absurd on the face of it. Uh, it says that somehow the Jews that were coming from Iran were Aryan and not Semites, and so they're different. And, and, uh, but again, as you say, he is exploiting the actual absurdity of, of Nazi laws or, 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 or notions of, of racially dividing people into groups and, and discriminating against them uh, in horrific ways. Um, where would the argument come from that, that these are Aryans and not Semites? How did he make that case? He went back to history and he said Cyrus the Great freed the Jews from Babylon and, and helped them go back to their homes uh, and, if, in fact, helped them to build their temples and so on. Therefore, the Jews left Iran. But uh, some of the Iranians of Aryan stock, who were, you know, your cousins, <laughs> Germans, they liked the teachings of Prophet Moses and uh, they, they followed some of the teachings. Uh, and Sadori turned up in, in French, he wrote mosaics. These are followers of uh, Moses. Moses. Uh, therefore, he argued that uh, these are not uh, from, from a racial perspective or from blood perspective. They are not Jewish. They are Aryan. They are Persian of Aryan stock. Uh, but they just happen to follow some of the teachings of Moses. In addition to that, in fact, I think you brought this up. And there was a political aspect to this too. Yes, which is, I guess you're, you're alluding to the idea that um, 
that the Germans, in, in some cases, whether they believed this case that Saadari was making or not, they wanted to keep good relations with the Iranians for the purposes of the Second World War. Yes, uh, Iran was crucial to them. Again, the, the best example is, is a, a gentleman called uh, von der Schulenberg. Schulenberg had been ambassador to Iran, minister to Iran. And therefore, one of the letters went to Schulenberg uh, to inquire whether Sadari's claim was true or not. Now, Schulenberg responded, I, I have the quotation here, uh, and uh, this is Schulenberg writing. This is translation from German. As I recall, the Juguten, I refer to uh, either mosaics or Juguten, which is a play on, on the uh, German Juten for, for, for Jews, Jew. Yeah. Uh, uh, as I recall, the Yuguten constitute a Muslim sect that essentially follows Mohammedan principles. The scope of the theology of Moses that they have adopted is very limited. On the basis of blood, they are Iranian, not Semite. Therefore, applying the German Jewish laws to them seems unjustified. We are trying, despite all the difficulties facing us, to maintain our good relations with Iran. Prejudice against Yuguten will defeat our efforts and will give our enemies propaganda ammunition to use against us. The Political Bureau 13 of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs recommends not applying the laws of German Jews to Yuguten, or at the very least, postponing the implementation. <laughs> this is a direct quote from Interesting. a that yeah. he, he has written. Not so subtle. <laughs> <laughs> There's clearly a political motive there. You know, the interesting part, I mean, if it's heroic that Sardari is using these arguments, using his charisma, using his speaking skills and his, his facility with languages to make the case to save these Jewish lives of Iranian Jews in France. It's real heroism when he also does this to save other Jews who aren't Iranian, but he makes the case that they are Iranian for the sake of saving them. Can you tell us about that part of the story? Yes. Again, that's a very interesting point. And there are two sides to that. One is that he had created a network. You see, the Germans were not satisfied with one document. They wanted multiple documents in order to be convinced that something was, you know, as claimed. So Sardari had to create a network. Uh, he would issue a document. Well, because of this network that he created, uh, there was a great deal of trust. Uh, and therefore, his Jewish friends would come to him, uh, Jewish Iranian friends, and say, we have non-Iranian partners, business partners, or uh, we have married to uh, non-Iranians, um, and, and Sadori would, would, would try to help them out. Now, the other side of this issue is that, according to Iranian laws, the cabinet of any government in Iran has the authority, legal authority, to give citizenship to any person who makes a commitment to serve the national interest of Iran. The person would, would say, I wish to donate a hospital or build a hospital or a school or do something of, of that sort in, in a location in Iran. And Sadari would use this as a provision to send a letter to the uh, government in Iran 
to the cabinet to request an application for this guy receiving Iranian citizenship. So he really wasn't above the law. He, he, there, there was a legal provision for doing this. But uh, he did that, and, uh, and he did it with quite a bit of success. Given that he prosecutes, that he presides over these, uh, the saving these lives, mm-hmm. it makes it all the more heartbreaking, this story, uh, when he, after the Second World War, towards the end of it and afterwards, he becomes basically this lonely, isolated man who is neither accepted in Germany nor in Iran, despite what he has done, uh, and over the years becomes relatively uh, unknown, only to die after the Iranian Revolution in exile, lonely and without very much money. It's in some ways as inspiring as the tale of this Iranian Schindler, uh, Abdul Hussein Sardari is. It's quite a sad story, isn't it? It is a very sad story. He had a very unpleasant childhood. His father had passed away at a very young age. He was sent to England at the age of seven. Uh, his mother basically neglected him. Sadari was, was basically left uh, with the servants to, to be taken care of, and at the age of seven was sent to, to England. So as a child, he, he really was deprived of that love and affection of the parents. Then later on, when he was in Paris, he fell in love with a young lady from China who was an opera singer. Her parents had sent her to France to study music. He uh, referred to her affectionately as Chin Chin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when the civil war in China started, Chin Chin went to visit pa- her parents and disappeared. Nobody heard from her again. So Sadori lost his you know, love of his life. And then uh, after the war, he was accused of having... Um, misappropriated uh, some of the funds that Iran had sent to France to purchase arms and ammunition for the army. And of course, he couldn't do that during the war. You know, during the war, you couldn't purchase arms and ammunition and send it to, to Iran. So he was accused of not uh, having uh, done his duty or misappropriating the funds when Iran st- uh, stopped sending money to uh, France uh, after Iran declared war on Germany. Uh, and then uh, it was during the uh, government of uh, Prime Minister Mossadegh, uh, the foreign minister uh, had an uh, axe to grind against him. That, that's another story in itself. If you fast forward to the end of the Shah and the, and the Iranian revolution, why does at that point Sardari raise the ire of the, the new regime in Iran? Well, uh, because he, he was the uh, nephew of Prime Minister Hoveida, right, uh, and uh, and of course, <laughs> you know, uh, he was he was accused of uh, all sorts of things um, because of that association. Uh, after the war, he 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 was um, detained for ten uh, ten days or so, and then uh, uh, Ambassador Sepahudi, who had known him and worked with him, uh, worked with him in in both Switzerland and France, went to. Prime Minister Gavam, Ahmad Gavam, uh, Gavam went to the Shah, and uh, Shah issued a royal pardon. Uh, so, you know, uh, he was allowed to come out of detention and rehabilitated. Uh, he went to the embassy, Iran, Iranian embassy in Iraq, but after the uh, coup d'etat in, in Iraq, 
when they overthrew the monarchy. Uh, then he returned to Iran and left the foreign ministry and joined the Iranian oil company. An oil company sent him to England. He was in England until uh, the revolution. So it's fair to say that when Abdul Hussein Sardari was living his final days with little material goods and, and uh, basically alone in England, it's fair to say that he wouldn't have guessed at that point that uh, 20 years later um, people would be talking about him as a hero, um, as a product of a claimed book. Uh, not at all. No, he, he was a, uh, not only he was a modest man, he, he didn't think he had done anything special. Uh, and actually, there are two very examples to illustrate this. Um, one of them is that uh, I think in, it was in 19, uh, late 60s or 70s, uh, he received a letter from Yad Vashem in, in uh, Israel that uh, we have heard you, you, you helped the, the Jews during the war. And his response, I, I actually saw the, uh, that, that letter, his response, it's, it's a short, very short letter, two lines. As well, thank you very much for, for your kind uh, notice and letter. But I simply performed my duty. It was my duty to look after Iranians, and I did so. Hmm. And, then, and signed. That was it. Uh, so this is one example that shows he, he didn't think he had done anything special. Uh, another example, I have mentioned this in, in my book again. There was a ceremony at, uh, in, in Los Angeles at the uh, uh, Simon Wiesenthal Center. And at that ceremony, Sadari was mentioned, and his nephew and uh, late Ambassador Hoveydov, Feridun Hoveydov, was there. Uh, Hoveydov said uh, after the war, he went to France, and he just happened to walk into the apartment of uh, his uncle, Sadari, and he saw a group of people there with a, they are giving him a silver plate in Skype, uh, uh, things thanking him. And he realized that these are the leaders of the Jewish community in Paris mm. uh, who have come to thank him. And you are giving him this silver plate as a sort of uh, gesture of thanks. He said, as soon as these people left, I got excited. I said, uncle, I'm, I'm going to call the uh, newspapers and, and let people know and so on. And he said, uh, in his word, he astonished. <laughs> he said, you never do anything of the sort. Oh. <laughs> I said, uncle, why not? He said, because I simply performed my duty. And he said, uncle, I, some of these were not Iranian. They, they, they were French. And he said, well, and that was my duty to God. <laughs> that was it. Wow. But, you know, even though he was uh, that humble, uh, the story is so important and so astounding. Why is it that unlike Oscar Schindler, uh, not to take anything away from Schindler, of course, uh, but I mean, yeah. that was a, a hit film and book and, and the entire world knows his name. We can use him as a uh, as a reference here. Uh, why is it that Sardari is so little known around the world? Well, part of it is, of course, his, his own modesty. Part of it is that a lot of people simply don't know. And part of it is political. Um, you know, there, there are lots of people in Israel who who know this story. Uh, they have read the book. In fact, uh, there's a magazine, in, in uh, a monthly magazine in, in Israel that has published parts of this book uh, on a monthly basis. It's, it's very well received in Israel, as I understand it, right? You've been invited on more than one occasion to, to discuss yes, your work. Yes, there. yeah. yeah. Uh, but for political reasons, you know, there, there are political 
officials, politicians, uh, who find it to their advantage to have bad relations between Iran and Israel. <laughs> you know, uh, so you know there, there are lots of Israelis and Jewish leaders in the United States and England and France who would like Sadari to receive official recognition, but. Um, so far, Yad Vashem has not come through. Well, there's an article I read from a couple of years ago in the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, uh, mm-hmm. and the story was that Sardari had not been honored by uh, Yad Vashem's Righteous Among the Nations because the museum said it didn't have enough evidence. So how, how much do you think, as you say, political, how much do you think right-wing politicians such as former Prime Minister Netanyahu have a, a bearing on Ambassador Sardari's posthumous recognition? Well, uh, I, I have my sus- suspicion. I don't have the, uh, I don't have the facts, but uh, um, there are things that I can tell you. Uh, one is that copies, photocopies of all the documents I found at the National Archives, which are copies of, of the German documents, uh, I send those to Yad Vashem. Uh, in fact, they were hand-delivered to Yad Vashem. Uh, when I wrote my book, I took a copy of my book and I went to Yad Vashem in person and I gave it to them. At one point, the head of Yad Vashem asked me for an affidavit uh, from uh, uh, Ambassador Hoveida, Feridun Hoveida, about the things that he had testified. Uh, and uh, I went to Hoveida and I got that official uh, and we stamped it and did all the official things to, and I send it to, to Yad Vashem. After a while, I got a letter that we have not received it. So I did this again for a second time, with, you know, special mail and so on. I, I think each time it cost me over $29 or so to do, do, to do this. So the idea that they don't have the documents is, is something that I have a hard time accepting. Somebody who is actually a, a friend of mine that I was telling about this, uh, who said that he had heard somewhere that that uh, Sardari's name will be added to Yad Vashem this year. Do you know anything about that? Uh, I don't, but I know that uh, there, there was a uh, uh, ceremony in New York not long ago, and one of the people there was actually Sardari's neighbor who bought Sardari's condo he was in New York, and he actually initiated a second sort of attempt to have this man recognized. The former head of Yad Vashem at the time was in, uh, was in uh, New York, and uh, he uh, tried to uh, lend a helping hand, you know. What are the reactions that have meant the most to you? Um, especially when you talk about going to Israel and hearing from Israelis uh, of Iranian descent, let's say, or not of Iranian descent, or people in the Iranian diaspora. What have you really treasured in terms of the way people have reacted to this story and your book? Well, uh, uh, the Iranians in general are, uh, feel very proud of this. Uh, you know, it, it gives a feeling of uh, has an uplifting, inspirational sort of feeling. Uh, that our culture is, is a culture of tolerance with, with nice people, with good people. <laughs> uh, unlike what you hear in the media about Iran at the moment, and Iranians. Uh, in Israel, Iranians who are in, in Israel, <laughs> who migrated to Israel, uh, they of course love the story, and uh, they feel very uh, moved by it. Uh, so it, it's been positive all around. Now, 
having said that, there are a few people that, oh, well, uh, he, he did this for money. All the evidence shows that this was not the case. You know, the survivors, for instance, uh, clearly say that this was not the case. Uh, in fact, in fact, Sadari um, used his own private means during the time he was in, in France to continue helping his friends uh, until the end of the war because his salary uh, had been cut after Iran declared war on Germany. Has anyone approached you about um, making a film of this story? Yes. Uh, several people have done that. None of them have succeeded so far. Two other people are still involved. The major issue has been raising enough, enough money to, uh, to do the project. Right. Documentaries have been made, but uh, a big screen movie. Would you want a big uh, screen movie version of this book? Uh, I would love to see it, yeah. And I would love people to see it. You mm. know, it, it would be wonderful if that would happen. You know, before I, I let you go, it is, I'm very grateful to get to talk to you about this book. It quite moved me. Let me ask you a little bit about your story, because it's no less interesting to a certain extent. You, you were born in the 1940s in Iran. You came west first before the revolution and studied uh, in America. You then returned to Iran, and your second and final departure from Iran was much more stressful and coincided with the storming of the U.S. Embassy in, in Tehran in, around the revolution. How did you manage to leave in the post-revolutionary havoc? Tell me about that time. Well, uh, uh, I came to the United States as soon as I graduated from high school, you know, Albus High School. Uh, and I studied in the United States uh, after I got my master's degree in international relations, uh, political science and international relations. Uh, I returned to Iran. It was uh, early 1970. And, of course, I had studied. I had no intention of staying in the United States. I had come to study and go back. I went back to Iran. I was attending a wedding, actually, and I found myself standing next to Dr. Meswaza, the publisher of Kehan. And just to making small talk, I, I said I was the editor of a campus newspaper when I was studying in the United States. He said, oh, in that case, you have to come and, come and work for me. So I, I went to Kehana. I started working for Kehana as a journalist. After the revolution, uh, I, I think nine months after the revolution, I left Iran. At that time, I, I was also the deputy executive director of the Iran-British Chamber of Commerce. There was a meeting in London, uh, and I could attend that meeting. So I, I left with uh, a very small briefcase with a change of clothes, and $4,000, that was the limit you could take with you. Hmm. Uh, so I left for London, and from London I, I went to the United States um, because a professor of mine uh, had offered me a fellowship. Uh, my wife is from Thailand. We met in college in the United States. Uh, our eldest son was born in the United States. My wife, of course, being Thailand, she had an Iranian passport and a, and a Thai passport. My son had an American passport, the elder son. My younger son was only two years old, was born in Tehran. So they went to Thailand in order to join me in, in the United States from there. But by that time, hostages had been taken, and uh, President Carter had issued an executive order not to give visas to Iranians. So my two-year-old son in diapers was a persona non grata. I couldn't get a visa right. to come to the United States. Right. 
So I went to the office of Senator Biden. I went to his office in Wilmington, Delaware, and I told the story to, to the lady who was in his office. Right. Uh, a couple of days later, I got a telephone call from my, my wife from Bangkok, Thailand. And she said, we just got a telephone call from the embassy, U.S. Embassy. And the person said, Madam, we don't know what kind of influence you have in Washington, but your son's visa is ready. Wow. <laughs> Let me ask you one final yeah. question. Um, sure. In the prologue to your book, Professor Bokhtari, mm. you say something revelatory, which is the following. You say, Iran has fallen upon hard times more than once, but has managed to rise up time and again. What has assured the nation's survival has been its profound cultural consciousness. What do you mean by that? You know, there, there really is a profound understanding that there is a difference between right and wrong, what is appropriate, what is not appropriate, uh, between beauty and ugliness. Uh, you see manifestations of this everywhere. If you really look, uh, look, look at look at Persian art. There really is something that not only recognizes what is right, what is wrong, what is nice, what is not nice, what is beautiful, what is not. But there is also something embedded in this, which is optimism. You know, there is optimism that you create beauty, you make something that is better, you create perfection. You, you will never get there. You might never reach perfection, but you try. Uh, so this is part of the culture. Uh, look at the Persian poetry. I mean, there, there are so many poems about tolerance, about humanity. What you're saying is so beautiful um, mm -hmm. that I hate to uh, pour any cold water on it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but optimism in our community in the contemporary sense um, mm -hmm. sometimes feels like a stretch. It feels like the opposite. It feels like we we feel like the bad Bacht people. We feel like there's so much to be sad about, so much to be upset about, so much to mourn. Um, and so it's an interesting twist to say that we see the beauty in everything or that, that we, we can be optimistic. Well, uh, again, if you look at the, uh, let's say, not only po uh, poetry, but music and the songs, there's also that sadness, but redemption. You know, the, that that uh, magical bird will rise again out of fire. <laughs> you know? uh, there, there is that optimism. Are you optimistic about the future of Iranians, if not Iran? Most definitely, yes. Uh, the best way to put it is we have had a pendulum effect. You know, the pendulum went from one side to the other side. Now it's going to go back. And eventually we're going to have that equilibrium as all pendulums finally reach. You know? Professor Mukhtari, I can't tell you how much of a pleasure it's been. And the opportunity to speak to you is something I very much appreciate. And your time and your patience, thank you for this today. Well, thank you. This was delightful. I appreciate it. Hope very to much. see you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Dr. Fadi Borza Mukhtari, the author of the book In the Lion's Shadow, the Iranian Schindler and His Homeland in the Second World War. Fadi Borza Mukhtari joined us from Vermont. This is full time for the Rook Media series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 10, brought to you with the support of Yazdani Law Group, one of Canada's largest immigration law firms, YLGPC, on Instagram. 
Please check out our regular editions of Rook and all things related at rookmedia.com. That's our website, rookmedia.com, where you can also find out information about becoming a sponsor or a patron. Thanks to the team who make Rook Media happen. Producer Susan, talented Anahita, Super Patty Saw, Ponta the Artist, the Fabulous Keon, Savvy Roham, Ahaya Mertad, Captain Reza, and Groovy Shaya. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you have not done so already. Find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. Mizunbashi. Bashi.